Welcome to another episode of The Artiste, a podcast series where I delve into the life and craft of an artiste. My name is Luke Gibson. Today's guest is a star of stage and screen. Her many and varied credits include appearances as two separate characters in the iconic TV series Prisoner, the celebrated lead role of Norman Desmond in the musical Sunset Boulevard, and has had critical acclaim playing the famed opera star Maria Callas in Terence McNally's play Masterclass. Welcome to the show, Maria Mercedes. Oh my goodness, I'm here. <laughs> you're, you're here. It's a very exciting time. It is. Thank you for appearing on the show. I want to talk to you about growing up in Melbourne as a little girl. Tell me about your life. Wow. Your suburb, the, the place that you went to school, your community. No one ever asks me that. So I'd love to. Look... Um, I'm first generation uh, Australian. My parents emigrated from Greece. Um, my father in 1954, I think, and mum in 56. So, yeah, they... Um, you need to know this backstory, by the way. Good. Um, just so that you can get an idea of the kind of world I came from. Um, yeah, mum came out with her sister, living with her brother. Her brother was working at GMH, and so was my dad and my future uncle. So my uncle invited both my dad and my other uncle Chris to come and have lunch. Um, they didn't know what was waiting for them, but my mum and and her sister were there and they had a beautiful Greek lunch and at the end of it my uncle turns and says, well, what do you think of each other? <laughs> And just like that, there was a proxy going on. They got engaged and not long after they were married. They had to work quick in those days. Wow. Um, because, you know, it was like being on Mars for them. Right. You know, uh, coming from Europe, from Greece, who had, you know, suffered from World War Two and then a civil war as well. Um, and so they had to act very quickly and... And form a new life for themselves, I guess, in this foreign land called Australia. So, yeah, I was the first born. We grew up in Brunswick, but I was born in Carlton. Right. And my dad thought, wow, okay, she's nearly two. I'm going to sell the house in Carlton. He worked really hard. You know, he was so poor. He came out with just the suitcase mm. and nothing else. Wow. And managed to work probably two, three jobs to be able to buy a little house in Carlton. Um, and then he thought, yeah, I'm going to sell up. He sold the house and my poor mum was so nervous to tell him that she was pregnant with my sister <laughs> <laughs> that um, 
Yeah, poor dad thought, I can't go back to Greece with two children, (laughs) (laughs) right? So he couldn't buy back into Carlton. Really? Yeah, right. And this is, um, yeah, late 50s. Wow. So he bought in Brunswick. So we were raised in Brunswick. Really? Yeah, and our street consisted of, you know, lots of migrant kids, Italians, Greeks, you know, Maltese kids, not many... Asians at that time um, that we saw, but uh, yeah, but my dad was very enterprising. He thought, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy myself a milk bar. I'm gonna run a milk bar. That's original." <laughs> <laughs> and is that what he did? He did, but he didn't take on the advice from my uncle, who had very successful uh, milk bars at the time. Uh, there was also another milk bar, two, two, you know, shops away from the milk bar. Dad wanted. And my Uncle Chris said, don't, George, just don't, because you're going to have problems. But Dad says, no, I'm going to buy it. He did. (laughs) And which brings me to this story. Uh, The milk bar didn't do that well and Dad had to go back to GMH. Right. And left the running of the milk bar to my mum, who couldn't speak English. So at the age of six, I'm serving customers in this milk bar. Wow. Yeah, in Brunswick on Ligon Street. So, yeah, it was an interesting time. Um, And Dad had that Greek pride. He wasn't going to go down, you Mm. know, even though he was being forced to consider going bankrupt. He said, no, I'll work 10 jobs if I have to. Really? Yeah, that's the kind of tenacity that a lot of these migrants had. Mm. Um, But I found it really difficult to fit in. Um, You know, being first generation... You really knew you were different. You right. Know. Um, how was how that pointed out to you? The way that we looked. Okay. Um, we weren't blonde and blue-eyed. Um, no offence to anyone who is blonde and blue-eyed. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, our lunches were certainly different. You know, we had the garlic meatballs instead of the Vegemite sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. My sister and I would throw our lunches away because we were so embarrassed, you know. Because kids are kids and they're really honest and if if something is really alien to them, they're going to point it out. Um, but we weren't that smart either, my sister Eleni and I. We would, you know, instead of throwing the lunches, we got tired of throwing lunches away, we decided to stack them underneath the mattress <laughs> and mum would find it at the end of the week. I'm surprised you didn't smell it, you know. Oh. <laughs> That's how crazy we were. Um, so, yeah... I remember a, a memory that has remained with me all my life. There was a great man. He was a police officer um, and we had the school ball at Brunswick State School and I tried to bribe boys to be my partner with lollies and cakes from my dad's shop but nobody wanted to be our partner at oh, this dance. Really? Yeah, because we were so different. So I said, Mum, we have to go because... That's what we have to do. So we needed a ball kind of dress, gown thing. And my mum didn't understand. So she went to Coles and got us the petticoats to it. And we said, mum, we can't wear this. This is petticoats. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this police officer, I forget his name, came to pick us up and he was driving us to the ball with his kids in the back. And I remember the kids going, dad, they're wearing petticoats, right? (laughs) And he said, just be quiet. So we arrived at the ball. My sister and I were our partners together and 
it was an awful night because I just remember people just looking at us and pointing and saying, they're wearing petticoats. We were ahead of our time, right? Because Madonna made it very, very popular and famous in the 80s. She did. So, yeah, um, which brings me to the point of, you know, what spurned me on to want to be a performer, Mm, I guess, mm. you know. I think the thing was for me wanting to fit in um, and to be accepted. Yes. And to be, you know, just normal. (laughs) What a profession to choose to be normal. So at school, did you have friends that weren't Greek? One, probably. Right. In state school, that is. Okay. Uh, In high school, again, very few. Um, Yeah, it was really hard to make friends with you know, kids that were Anglo at the time. How isolating was that for you? It was very isolating, um, but it also made me very driven, I guess, to be popular. Um, I was the school comedian. I'd be doing Tom Jones impersonations (laughs) on top of the desk, you know, at the time. How did they go down? They loved it. Okay. And that was your way of fitting in? <laughs> yeah, that was my way of fitting in. And when Young Talent Time came along, they were looking for contestants and, you know, kids in my classroom said, you know, you should go on, be a contestant. You're really good dancing on school desks. Great. And you did. <laughs> Look, it was traumatising, the audition. I'd ne- I didn't come from a showbiz background, you know, I had been doing some acting classes. I had convinced my dad to send me to acting school. Um, there was a, a great little uh, drama centre called the Tate Theatre of Performing Arts and mm. uh, it was situated on top of a, a petrol station, I remember, <laughs> on Rathdown Street. Right. Mr. Mr. Bates, Master Bates, he used to lock me in the room and make me do these vocal exercises all the time. Um, voice production, actually, they were called. Did it pay off? Yes, because I was far too loud in my projection. Right. We'll get to that point. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, I went along to Lewis Young Productions and I tried to audition. I was terrified. I sang the song, or tried to sing something by the Beatles, and Leslie Shaw, bless her, she kind of knew there was something there that I wasn't bringing forward because of my lack of confidence. And uh, she spoke to my dad and um, suggested that I go and get some classes and lessons with Voila Ritchie, right. who was John Farnham's teacher okay. at the time, and uh, Rick Springfield and a lot of a lot of you know pop singers right. at the time. So what I learnt was pop singing. Okay. And Voila, who's now Voila Arnold, was so committed to learning new techniques when it came to singing, that she would go to America every year and come back with with the new techniques to, you know, impart upon her students. Brilliant. So, yeah, I studied for about six months and then I re-auditioned and I got on. I didn't win my heat, but Leslie decided that I was going to come back six months later and I did. And I got to the semi-finals and I had to wait a certain period of time before I do the finals. I thought, what do I do now? Okay, I'll telegram new faces because we had telegrams in those days. Really? I did. 
And so immediately they telegrammed me back and said, yes, we'd love to have you on as a contestant. Wow. So I won new phases before I won Young Talent Time. Really? So yeah. run, run me through then that the new phases thing, you uh, you get the telegram. Yep. And you've got how many weeks to prepare? Um, Several weeks, I think. Yeah. So I, I went on and I had a lot of my school friends in the audience. Um, yeah. So I won the heat, quarterfinals, semifinals, and then the finals, and then... I won the finals of Young Talent Time. And how did that change your life? Um, it changed it a lot, actually. Mm. All of a sudden, I'm I'm getting all this attention that I thought I wanted and needed, but it was quite not what I expected. Right. Okay. Um, look, I was really serious about wanting to be a, a singer and an actor. Yes. Um, because I was going to the Crawford Film and Television School as well. Okay. Um, and they were the great days of Australian TV because mm. it was very Hollywood in the fact that there was a production house that had its own talent school uh, and, you know, directors would sit in and, you know, choose certain people as guest performers on either Homicide, um, Matlock Police, mm. Division 4... All those things that I ended up doing. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it changed a lot. Um, I got myself a manager. Well, I was, you know, um, told that I had to have this person as my manager by Lewis Young Productions. It wasn't the best choice for me. Um, Lack of experience and my father's lack of experience as well. Um, Yeah, it wasn't the right choice. He ended up stealing quite a lot of money from me. Um, yeah. There was this supposed bank account that my money was going into and because I was underage, um, he said, you know, he had to manage everything for me. So there was a lot of things. I was, you know, thrown into this whirlwind of another world and I was sent off to Tassie and Perth and Queensland and I was 17 at the time and... You know, I'd be going to school for like a week or so and then I'd be off right? working. And so my headmaster called my dad in and said, look, she has to choose, you know, it's either school or this newfound profession, but she can't be coming to school for a week and then chuffing off and performing. What do you think of that? Loved it. <laughs> said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> And so did you... I loved it at the time, but I didn't years down the track, though. Interesting. So did you actually then fall into this career that you've been able to manage for your whole life through that first New Faces and then Young Talent Talent Time? Time. Yeah. Is that what really happened? Absolutely. And then I remember as soon as I won that, I was sent off to um, Perth and my dad, bless him, you know, around the traps, around Melbourne, he would accompany me. He was my chaperone. And then I had to go on a plane. I'd never been on a plane before, you know, um, and travel interstate. And I remember the f- the second trip of, of performing, you know, out of Melbourne. Oh, my God, which was a learning curve in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Dad waiting at the airport with a script under his arm. I'd got my first guest role in, in a Crawford production. Wow. Division four. Yeah, but they were trying times as well. I was so young and 
I had no one really protecting me. Um, when they sent me off to Perth, I was singing at a place called The Godfather, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which was like something out of The Godfather movie, like it was a club run by this Italian man by the name of Carl Rispoli who was like mafiosa, you know, and I was there for three weeks and, you know, I was the main act having won those talent shows. My support act was a stripper. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding you. And every week I'd say to Carl, when are you going to pay me? He says, I'm not paying you because I know you're going to waste your money. I'm going to give you the money on the day that you leave. So basically I was there for three weeks with nothing to kind of live on, you know. Um, Did he pay you at the end? He did. But then stupidly I gave the money over to the manager that was ripping me off. Right, okay. Yeah. And I want to fast forward (laughs) to a a TV show called Kick. That Mm. was one of of the times that our paths crossed in the industry. That was – I was working, working as a runner. Yeah. Uh, on that TV show. That was my first full-time gig um, in a TV drama and it was pretty exciting. I remember that we filmed a lot in Brunswick. And we did. that is where you grew up. Yeah. How was that for you as a character to go back to the place that you grew up in um, but also portraying, um, you know, a, a Greek character as well? That was really a full circle for me. Um Look, I love that series. Mm. I loved it with all my heart because it would never have been produced by, say, Channel 9 or 7 or 10 for that matter. Too many wogs in it, right? (laughs) Too many ethnic people. We can't have that. Um, Diversity? What does that mean? (laughs) So, yeah, I loved it because, you know, it was very multicultural and it really displayed... um, what life in Brunswick or any working class area of Australia would be like. You know, it wasn't whitewashed the way Neighbours is, you know. Mm. Um, So I loved it. Uh, I loved playing Dora. She was the mother from hell, (laughs) right? (laughs) But the wonderful thing is, you know, because they used a lot of different locations, as you know. We arrived to shoot in Dora's you know, uh, interior, and the house belonged to friends of my mum and dad. No way. Yeah. How was that? That was amazing. And they and the mother was in tears, like, because my dad had passed away in 2001 and they really hadn't seen my mum. Well, they couldn't see my dad, obviously, but hadn't seen mum for a while. And they were just so proud that Maria was there mm. in their home. Which, you know, they're the jobs you love. I remember um, with a fond passion, obviously I was getting to know a lot of new people on that series, but you were always um, smiling. You always looked like you were having a good time, not only when you were when the camera was rolling, yeah. but off camera as well. Yeah. Was it a really happy experience for it you? It was. It was great. Love the crew. All the other actors were fabulous people as well. And we felt like a family. And we had crazy Esmond Storm, who wrote and directed, um, who was quite a mad professor. And getting back to my voice production classes with Mr Bates, you know, when I 
When I got into film and TV, I, I was always told to contain it because I was too big, too loud. So to this day, I have to be mindful of internalising whenever I'm, you know, doing something on screen. But Esben wanted everything bigger. I said, right. are you sure? <laughs> yes, it has to be bigger. I'm thinking, wow, at long last I can relax. <laughs> Did he have to pull you back at some point? No. Since, really? No. Even the audition process, bigger, bigger. Wow. <laughs> Who is this man? That's great. So he allowed you the opportunity to be you. Yeah. Not only to be me, um, but also to portray us as a culture. We are very big. We don't play small, you mm, know. Yes. You know, people get frightened by that thing. Oh, shit, they're going to kill each other soon, <laughs> right? But no, we are very animated. We are very loud. We are very passionate and that's who we are and that's what he wanted. Yeah, okay. Well, And, and a, great, a great director. He was a great, great director, director, great man. Yeah. Now, Patrick is a film which is a, an unusual a film. Um, you've seen or you've been involved in both um, – uh, productions of it. I have. Run me through how you got involved the first time round. The first time round, my agent called me to say, there is a director by the name of Richard Franklin who is very interested in having a meeting with you to see if uh, you'd like to be in his film. I said, oh, really? Okay. So I went and had this meeting with Richard Franklin. Okay. Obviously, he had followed my singing career and whatever else I, I had done. Um, and he explained, you know, the synopsis of this Patrick character and he was looking at me to play the role of Nurse Panicelli. Right. Um, a very nervous, timid kind of character, <laughs> which was completely the opposite yes. to me. He said, now, Maria, there aren't many scenes with you but I'd really love you to do it. I said, I'll do it. I don't care. I just want to be in a film. Yeah. So um, then several weeks later, my agent calls to say that Sir Robert Heltman is playing Dr. Roger <laughs> and that he's a big fan of yours and that he's writing extra scenes for you and him to do together. What? I'm thinking, what? <laughs> I'm thinking, wow. So I studied my, my scenes because I... You know, I had to be good for Robert Helpman because <laughs> he's written these scenes for us. I get on set, he didn't remember a word he wrote. Really? <laughs> so I'm just looking at the director and um, the AD and I'm thinking, what do I do? What do I do? Just go along with it. Yeah. So you... Sorry, Sir Robert Helpman, wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> so you ad-libbed a lot of what you did or...? Well, look, he, he knew the, the premise of the scene but... You know, and I guess, you know, that's that's modern filmmaking as well. You mm. throw the script away and you yes. just go for it. A lot of what Tarantino does is that way as mm. well, you know. So maybe he was ahead of his time and I and I had to, you know, change my thought process of, of how I work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was your first feature film. It was. How was that as an overall experience to, to put on the resume for you? Did, did you learn lots? Uh, did you come away from that with a, a better appreciation of what happens on a film set? How did it affect you? Look, we were so fully immersed in it. We didn't know whether it would be successful or not. I just loved the whole process of it all and it was, 
yeah, it was, you know, when you go to work every day and you can't wait to get there because you love it so much. Mm. That's what it was like. Wow. And then fast forward, you were involved in a uh, in the well, it's not the sequel, but Patrick made again. Um, how did that evil, come about? Evil, evil awakening or something? <laughs> I was in India uh, after Love Never Dies. Um, I decided I wanted to go to India to meet up with a friend who was living and working there. And whilst I was away, I got an email to say that uh, they're doing a remake of Patrick, and. The director who had done a documentary on Australian films um, finally got the finance to do a remake of his most favourite film, which was Patrick, and he was trying to get as many of the original cast members to play cameo roles, I guess, and whether I'd be interested, and I said, yeah, sure. And it was that easy? Yes. Well, the first one I was a nurse and the second one I played a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Got an education. <laughs> and what what was the what was the the process? Was it a very different process going back a second time round with you know, oh, decades in between? Oh yeah, it was alien. Oh, look, I only had one scene mm, basically, okay, right? Okay. And yeah, there was no real connection. I mean, people were so wrapped that we were there at any capacity. You know, mm. the original people from Patrick, um, but because it's a fly-in, you know only a day's work, you really didn't have much time to connect to it. Mm. And I haven't seen it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Put that on the to-do list. I have to. <laughs> now, when do you think that you became, I don't know if household name is is the right um, word or phrase, but did Prisoner, was that your breakout role um, when you appeared on, on Prisoner? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'd always been known mm. um for all the various things that I was doing and singing on, you know, nighttime variety TV and doing the guest roles and concerts and what have you. Um, But that was the first regular role that I had on something. And, yeah, totally, you do become a household name because that show was just huge. It was. And did that surprise you how massive it became? It's it's still one of the biggest cult uh, TV productions that's ever been made in Australia. Definitely. Um, look, for me at the, at the time I didn't analyse it like that because I had such a, a great career, you know, doing safe, middle-of-the-road, um, you know, singing, what have you. But at home, you know, because I was doing the clubs, I was doing this, doing that, the music I was singing wasn't the music that I was listening to. Right, okay. Okay, and um, I had a nervous breakdown at 21. Wow. I did, and uh, it was just the pressures of, of, you know, giving my honesty, my passion, um to people who weren't looking after me. So did you give away too much of yourself in hindsight? Yeah, because I I was so inexperienced um, and I had no one to guide me and I had to learn the hard way. You know, for example, being sent off as a 17-year-old to sing in a strip club, you Mm. know. I mean, that'll be great for, you know, the biography that I write. Yes, (laughs) definitely. But you don't do that to kids, you know, because I was. I was a kid and um, so... 
and then um, being asked to pose in bikinis for page three of the truth paper. Um, it was a dichotomy of what I wanted to be and the talent that I believed I had and the, you know, the image that I was being forced into. And so coupled with that, being in a bad relationship at the time, um, yeah, I just hit rock bottom and I started to imagine that I was sick all the time, that I had a cold all the time and so I was taking over-the-counter, you know, flu capsules which at the time were probably laced with God knows what and so when I stopped taking them, cold turkey, I had probably an addiction to mm. them and um, my whole being just collapsed. How did you even start to come back from, from that? Well, um, being a very inquisitive human being that I am, I started reading a lot and um, I was on medication to to help me through, you know, Valium and whatever, and I read a biography on Judy Garland and how she was put on pills from a young girl and and how that led to her self-destruction in the end and, to, you know, dying so young. And I thought, that's not going to happen to me, yeah. you know. And so I stopped taking the Valium and I started reading books on nutrition and I thought, I'm going to do the music I want to do. I want to do rock music. I want to write. Um, and that's what I started doing. But even then, I had this ability to attract thieves as managers, you know. We, I had this manager who was, you know, um, he formed the band for me. Well, actually, I found a great guitarist at the time, Paul Gilday, who ended up being in Ice House. He was my right-hand man. He was just wonderful. Um, and so we were doing 12 gigs a week all around Melbourne. Wow. Yeah, doing the Chevron and, you know, all sorts of gigs around Melbourne and Victoria to the point where I lost my voice because mm. we, you know, the cheapskate didn't have enough fallback for us either. Right. But, God, it was an exciting time <laughs> being dressed in leather and writing my own music with Paul and other, you know, musicians in the band and I was living the rock and roll dream, mm. you know. There was no money but I was living the dream, right? right? And supporting people like Glenn Shorrock and, you know, the party boys and, you know, being in that realm and, you know, we were nearly signed by uh, CBS Records at the time as well but you know what? To get a record contract back then, you know, they scrutinised who your management was and and how the unit, the band were. And there was a lot of internal conflict because we weren't getting paid. Mm. Right. So when my voice left, I had no voice anymore. I thought, okay, that's the sign from the universe to say enough. So I, I the band left. And I went back to drama school, John Gauchy, great man, and his lovely wife. And, yeah, and that's when I got into prisoner. 
Okay, okay. So prisoner was a big turning point when you yeah. kind of made some decisions for yourself. And how did that how did that go down for you? Were you on set five days a week? How, yeah. Yeah, okay. So talk me through those. I'm going to call them the glory days of television. Mm. How was that for you, um, going, going to work every day? Was that the excitement-filled um, fun factory of, of Crawford days? Yeah, but Grundy did. It was Grundy's yeah, as Grundy well. Grundy did it? Prisoner. Yeah, look, it was great to to be a part of such an incredible ensemble of wonderful actresses. Um, you know, we're talking about the days when female actresses hardly had a look in when it came to TV. Yet this was a show completely mm, about them. Absolutely. I mean, later down the track, they did include, you know some male actors playing officers, but it was great. It was a great camaraderie and um, so supportive. And I did Prisoner twice. Yes, yes. The first time was, you know, I played Irene Zervos, um, nice great girl who got into prostitution. (laughs) 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 She do. (laughs) Um, And I became friends with Peter Tapano during that time. Yes. That was a short stint. Right. Um, and then I left that uh, and I just did other things and then they brought me back years later um, to play Yamil Bacada, who was a Middle Eastern girl, which was really ahead of its time, mm. right? Yeah. A, we didn't have a lot of, you know, um, Middle Eastern people in our community at the time and it was – kind of an unknown territory as far as that migrant background was concerned. So, yeah, that was that was great um, to play an Islamic woman at the time, yeah. Was that unusual for them to bring back a, an actor to play a totally different part, um, you know, yeah, later down in, yeah. in the series? I don't know because I'm not quite aware whether they did that Regularly or not. But I guess because I had only had a short stint originally, they felt five years later that could bring me back. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, I want to fast forward to Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Now, that was my, the first ever um, professional musical that I worked on backstage. And And what a musical to to work on. Boy, it was, (laughs) it just, it had everything. Yeah. Tell me, um, that was the first time we met. Yep. Tell me this whole experience of Sunset Boulevard and how that changed your life. Sunset Boulevard. I was living in Sydney when Hey Hey It's Saturday was on and they showed a clip of um, Paddy Lapone singing As If We Never Said Goodbye. And I thought, oh... My God, Um, this is something I need to do. So, lo and behold, um, they started doing auditions, uh, really useful, kind of assembled a group of well-known Australian actresses to audition and they filmed us. Um, It was only a handful and they... Sent that off to Trevor Nunn in London. Yes. Um, And I was really banking on that role because I was living in Sydney at the time and it was tough 
even though I'd had all these great big musicals I'd done, my life's always a learning curve, mm. <laughs> right? I'd found myself in a situation where I'd let go of my career in a big way. Um, and for me, if I'd got this would be my ticket to salvation. Right. Not only work-wise but personally as well. And so I hadn't heard back and lo and behold they announced that Deborah Byrne had the role Um, and I was shattered. Mm. I was shattered. And uh, anyway, a month or so later really useful contacted my agent to ask whether I would be interested in possibly auditioning for Trevor, who's coming out, to play the alternate. Right. Now, for the people that don't know how that works, what is the alternate Norma Desmond or the alternate anyone Mm. in a theatrical production? The alternate um, actor who, who plays the role, per se, in any production, they get assigned two performances a week to play that role. Um, And it's usually someone who isn't very well known, I guess. But in this case, I was well known and they treated, um, you know, this offer very differently um, because I auditioned for Trevor and I was such an upstart. I said, now, Trevor, because <laughs> I had met Trevor during Nine, the musical. Right. When his wife at the time, Sharon Lee Hill, took over from Peter Tapana for a little while. I said, Trevor, did you see my video? <laughs> <laughs> Why am I here auditioning for an alternate? <laughs> um, he said, yes, I did. Um, okay, anyway, so they offered me the alternate. But for me, what that meant was not only would I have two shows a week, I'd also have an opening night with press, publicity, um, and I would have uh, a certain block of performances as well when Deborah was going to take some leave. Yes. And if needed, uh, I would be called upon to do more than my advertised two shows a week. Right. And because uh, it was... Very different. I don't see that happening these days. I mean, they had full-page ads and I was being sent to Sydney to, you know, do interviews and all sorts of things and and singing on, you know, Bert Newton show in the morning with one look. Um, anyway, so it was a, you know, I felt honoured that they would go to that length. Good, yeah. But it was a role I had to do under any circumstance mm. because I knew these roles like Norma Desmond don't come along every day and we're talking about 96, 97 and I'll tell you, that role has never come along again, that capacity. Mm. Not Norma Desmond per se. but something like that. Something like that. It was a throwback to to glory days of of music music theatre. So, yeah, so that's what it was and that's what I did. How did you – because for me it's a very uh, uh, emotional musical mm. um, and I can't imagine how that would be like for you because you've got these songs that you pour your heart into um, that 
at the end of it, I'm, I'm surprised you're not crying because you've thrown so much emotion into it. How was it singing those songs each performance? Well, look, to be honest, I was terrified, even though I wanted the, the show so much. Leading up to my first performance, I was terrified. And my last rehearsal, Hugh Jackman wasn't able to, to be there because he was ill, but he wanted to be on for my performance. Right. So he took a rest during the day. Good. Um, and, yeah, and that was like my tryout before my opening night. I loved Norma Desmond with all my heart. Yes, it was terrifying to play her. Some nights it was easier. A lot of the nights I had to really psych myself up because they are emotional songs and she goes on such an incredible journey and at the end she is completely gone and lost mentally, spiritually. So, yeah, you had to look after yourself. But I I just adored it and I adored the cast Um, and if they're listening, you know, we loved each other. We were a family and... It was really sad that it only lasted the seven, eight months that it did. Mm. And also it was, look, it was tinged with sadness, let's be honest, yeah. from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, the musical director, Brian Stacey, uh, died. Yeah. Um, he was hit when he was on his motorcycle um, the night before opening night. And I, I, I don't know, that it, it was kind of tinged with that sadness throughout uh, because he was no longer there. Yeah. I, I remember... The moment I heard, well, actually, they didn't announce who it was. I was in a car and they said someone from the new musical Sunset Boulevard, which is about open, has been killed on a motorbike. I'm thinking, is it crew? And I knew that Brian had a motorbike, but it didn't compute. Didn't register, yeah. No, until we were called by company management. It was just, it was disastrous, but to come back 24 hours later and open um, that they, show. They were amazing. Deborah Byrne was amazing. Mm. Her opening night was just extraordinary because I was in the audience. Mm. <laughs> so if that show came back, mm. would you be there in a heartbeat? Absolutely. I worked with Paul Bogave, who was the musical director who got Glenn Close together for her <laughs> Norma Desmond, right? And Paul, he was a nutter. I'm sure he wanted to play Norma Desmond. But, um, (laughs) yeah, just the amount of love. People who worked on Sunset Boulevard loved that show with all their heart and it would still terrify me doing it. But after playing Maria Callas, I don't think anything could terrify me. Um, So, yeah, I would love to do it again. And that's a great segue because Maria Callas, I'm I'm guessing, but you can tell me otherwise, Sunset Boulevard, Norma Desmond mm. and Maria Callas in Masterclass, mm. are they your two favourite stage roles? Louisa Contini in Nine is as well. Okay. Well, let's go backwards to that. Was that your first musical? Rocky Horror was my first ah, musical. <laughs> great. And you were magenta in that one? I was and, and it was a crazy tour. We toured Australia, Glenn Chorick played Eddie and Russell Morris was Riff Raff, my brother. Um, and we had this American guy playing um, Frankenfurter and Victoria Nichols played... Sailor Century. Yes. Yeah. And um, oh, his name escapes me. He's going to kill me. Who was in Skibby. Um, he played... 
Brad. Anyway, that was a fun tour, but I didn't think it was legit either. How do you mean? I don't know. I just kept turning to everyone saying, is this is this real musical theatre? <laughs> because it was so rock and roll. And, uh, yeah, it was crazy. I loved it, but I really didn't think it was it was my first foray. It, it didn't feel like it, and I was right. So then Nine was the next one, was yeah, it? Yeah, Nine. Now, I, I think that I know my musicals, but I'm not that familiar with mm-hmm. the musical Nine. Run me through the plot. Nine is based on Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, okay. the film. Yes. And Murray Yeston, Arthur Copert, they wrote the musical version of it. I think out of all the musicals I've ever done, I think that's the one that is closest to my heart. It was my first big musical. No one had ever heard of me in music theatre prior to that. Um, And I was embraced by the musical theatre community and I sang two of the most incredible songs I've ever sang in my life, Be On Your Own and My Husband Makes Movies. Mm. It was a, It's a glorious musical. The soundtrack that we recorded, the Australian soundtrack, won an ARIA award. Wow. Um, it was listed in the American musical on record as being the best recorded version of the show. We got incredible reviews all around Australia um, and Variety Mm. America. So a lot of focus on me at the time, um, yeah, which resulted in me having my first bout of stage fright. So how far into the run were you when that happened? Probably three or four months. And what brought that on? Was there a specific point in time that you went, I can't go on stage? Yeah, look, um, I don't know. Sharon Lee Hill, Trevor Nunn's wife at the time, was taking over from Peter and poor Sharon only had like five days to rehearse and I was so nervous for her that I sat there and then started to... I, You know, when you're performing, you're in this realm, you're in a world, another world altogether... I stepped out of it and right. I started looking into it. Okay. And that's what freaked me out. And uh, bless Nancy Hayes because at one stage I was just on stage in a world of my own having no idea where I was, which was really crazy. And so I'd go home and practice the words even though I knew them and the songs even though I knew them. And Nancy Hayes pulled me aside and I have her to thank that I was able to overcome this to a point where I can control it. Um, She said when she was doing Chicago, that's when it hit her. Okay. And she'd be looking at Geraldine Turner's feet for the dance moves, even though she knew the dance moves. And she was doing the same thing, running over the lines. She said, what you have to do is stay in the moment. Right. Don't think about what you've done. Don't think about what you're going to do, but just stay in that moment. And that was the best advice anyone could give me. So how long did it take you to get through that to be comfortable again on stage? Um, In all honesty, I don't think I've ever recovered. Wow. Yeah. That's a massive statement. Yeah. So you still um, get stage fright? Sometimes, yeah. But I have to remember... I have to, you know, stay in the moment. 
And you were embraced by the musical theatre community mm. um, during this production of Nine. Was that kind of almost payoff for you not being embraced in your youth for who you were? Yeah, finally I was legit. It took that show to make me legitimate. And I was 29 at the time. And remember, I had started, you know, professionally when I was 17. It took all those years of all those experiences to get to that point. And to have Richard Franklin and Everett de Roche come to the opening night of Nine mm. and send me a note backstage, that just said it all. Wow. Yeah. And then Maria Callas, that's one of your favourite roles. Talk to me, first of all, give me a background about Maria Callas and what you knew of her before this um, production of uh, what Terence McNally's play came to Australia. I knew nothing about Maria Callas. I was um, at, you know, some loose ends. I wasn't really working after I came back from India, after Love Never Dies. And my lovely friend, Anthony Brandon Wong, suggested I do a workshop with Elizabeth Kemp, who was a teacher at the Actors Studio in New York, and she would come out to do her dream actors workshop. Um, she was Bradley Cooper's teacher. She worked closely with Ilya Kazan and um, just that incredible echelon of, of actors in America. And... I needed inspiration and Anthony said, you've got to do it. And I thought, okay, so I'm going to do this workshop. And I tried to self-sabotage myself because I hurt my back and I thought, oh, yeah, great, I'm not going to do it now. Really? Yeah, and a voice said, you have to do this workshop. And so I arrived for, you know, the preliminary first day and Elizabeth, bless her, she said, okay, who... Who was the person with the injured back? <laughs> yeah, it's me. <laughs> but it is the most incredible... I can't even... It wasn't even acting class. It was life class with her. You had to collate your dreams. You had to choose a character. I chose Maria Callas. I don't know why. I just did. You had to bring... There were 30 of us in this workshop. You had to bring your character to life as a child, as a you know, young adult, as an older person if they were. The dreams that you had collated, you had to put that character into your dreams. And then, and also she would make you face your shadows, the darkness that all of us carry in our life, you know, regardless of whether we're actors or not, we all have some kind of shadow. Um, you face it and she would bring you into the light. And that was my discovery of Maria Callas. Elizabeth said, now you have to do masterclass at the end of that week. And wow. I thought, wow, yeah, okay, how am I going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, because, you know, they're just going to ring me up and tell me we'd like you to play Maria Callas. And guess what? They did. How, how does, I'm trying to get my head around how that happens, like that you go from doing that workshop mm. to them ringing you up to, to do it. Well, I fell in love with Callas. Um, I yeah, she was an opera star. T talk she, to me about yeah, her life. Maria Callas 
um, very much like me, was first generation America, American born from Greek immigrants, living in New York, um, considered herself very unattractive, uh, overweight, ugly, um, wanted to fit in so badly, uh, had a voice. And her mother was trying to, you know, live vicariously through Maria and would have Maria singing at, you know, parties and what have you. And, um, you know, she struggled to have this incredible career that she manifested and she broke so many rules. You know, um, she's been criticised for the way that she sang and and supposedly burned her voice out before its time. But she she was... She was something. She was so passionate and she was an actress and a lot of the opera singers at the time acted mm-hmm. but never embraced and captured those roles and Maria dared to do things that other, you know, opera singers wouldn't. Um, and so I I loved that element of her. I I identified with her on so many levels and so, yeah, and the thing was I posted on Facebook on a friend's site, Paul Tabone, who is working in London in Phantom. He's an opera singer and I thought, and I said to him, I've just finished doing Maria Callas. I have to play Maria Callas. And, you know, the, the Chinese whisper got mm. to Cameron Lukey, the producer. He thought, oh, yeah, she's Greek. Actress, singer, and so I had a meeting with him and lo and behold, I did Maria Callas. Incredible. And you, how difficult is it for you to detach uh, yourself from the part that you're playing at any given time? Look, I think in all honesty, I, I, don't, I can't speak for other actors, but for me... Um, I bring part of them home every night. Right. I do. Yeah. You know. I wondered some people could just leave them at stage door, but Mm-mm. every every one that you've every role that you've done, you you find yeah. you, you take a little bit home with you. I do because you can't fake what you do. Um there are actors who, who you know leave their their roles at stage door, but for me they're living with me. Mm. You know, before yeah. I'd go out to to play Maria Callas, I'd speak to Maria and I'd say, we have to do this together, you know. I'm you, but you have to help me be you. So she'd walk out with me every night and I'd thank her every night. Thank you. And what a gift she gave you. Didn't she? In that that part. I have her photo in my living room. (laughs) I look at her every day and I go, thank you. Yeah. And where did you play that? How um, how many shows did you do? We did initially. We did um, forty five downstairs. Great venue, very New York, very intimate. You know, ours was the stripped back version. There was right. no set. Yes, that room was our set, and it looked like a you know an opera studio somewhere. Right. We did two seasons there. Um, then we did the Hayes in Sydney. Um, which did well. It could have done better. I just think that the Hayes, as wonderful as it is, I think it's renowned for musicals. Okay. 
where ours is really a play with some opera singing. Right, okay. And that's the difference. Different beast. Yeah, it is a different beast and it needs an appropriate space. Um, yeah, so – and then we did some venues around Melbourne as well. I loved her and uh, she was a gift. And in every role I do is a gift. Mm. Yeah. Which leads me to I'm, – I'm just going to read out the musicals that uh, I'm aware that you've done. Nine, you've mentioned Sunset Boulevard, Pet Shop Boys reinterpreted, Love Never Dies, Rocky Horror, you did Magenta, but you also um, play, played Frankenfurter in a, a Neighbours uh, production yes. of it as well. Cats, Chess, Forbidden Broadway, And the World Goes Round, Chicago, Fame, Gypsy. How do you, like, there's so many roles there. For me, something like Chicago, you played Mama Morton. Mm -hmm. Is that a gift? Yeah, absolutely. I loved playing Mama Morton. Wow. Belting out, you know, when you're good to Mama and being top dog. It was almost like prisoner, wasn't it? Well, that's right. And and it's all about the females, really, except yeah. for, you know, Billy Flynn. Exactly. Um, now, that was great. Did that for nearly two years. Wow. I'm very jealous they're doing it again. I would have loved to play Mama again, but Casey Donovan's doing it and she's going to be phenomenal. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. And so the other one's cats, Grizabella. Mm-hmm. Now, Grizabella is the glamour cat. She is. <laughs> oh, she used to be. <laughs> so she got beaten up. Yeah. Um, how often are you on stage as Grizabella? Not often, mm. which is problematic. Yes. What are you doing backstage during that time? Well, yeah, that's the thing. That role, in all honesty, has driven actresses crazy. They all develop some kind of psychosomatic (laughs) syndrome. I don't know. Yeah, it's a long time and every time you are on stage, you're being hissed at and, you know, (laughs) here she comes. Remark the cat. Um, Yeah, difficult character. That was offered to me when I was doing Nine in Sydney. Okay. And that's a role that I had auditioned for as well. Right. But I had never done musicals. There's no way that I would have been cast in it. And I remember Trevor saying to me, did you audition for Cats for me? I said, yeah. He said, I don't remember. I said, well, is it any wonder? I I was just, (laughs) you know, I was so bad you didn't remember me. Um, Yeah, so we opened in, in Sydney with Nine and literally the next day I had a phone call to go audition for the producers to play Grizabella in Melbourne to take over from Megan Williams at the time. And I said to the company manager, I said, but I'm not really a dancer, you know. Um, Oh, no, she doesn't dance. She just wafts on and, (laughs) you know, drags her foot a bit and (laughs) sings a song. And that's it. Yeah. So, yeah, I went in, sang a bit of memory and... So, yeah, I finished doing Nine in Sydney and straight into Cats in Melbourne. And I had 10 days rehearsal and I was on. How exhausting is that to go from one big show Mm -hmm. to another big show? Yeah, it is. Um, It's exhausting because you need time to separate from the character that you've just played, you know. You need to grieve that character. That's something that people don't talk about. 
when you finish a show that you love and a character that you've, you know, fully immersed yourself into, there is a grieving process. I get very melancholy after a show. Um, is that grieving process about putting that character to bed? Is that char- Has that character died for you? What, what is it exactly? They haven't died but they have left, mm. you know. They never die. They they leave and you won't get that opportunity to to play with them anymore, to visit the realms that they visit, to live through their eyes anymore. Mm. So it is a grieving process. You, it's saying goodbye to a friend. And that's exhausting unto itself. Yeah, so I didn't have time to mm, do that. Okay. Straight into cats and, yeah. To this day, I don't really know whether I enjoyed my time in Cats. Wow. Mm -hmm. Still, after all those Mm -hmm. years. Yeah. There was so much onus on on that song, Memory. Right. Okay. That was the make or break for the show. Yeah, it is. Right. People are waiting for that song. Yes. And, you know, sometimes I could hit those notes comfortably. Other times I'd freak myself out so much that it was a struggle to reach them. Um, so you develop this anxiety over it, you know. Um, yeah. So it didn't make for a fun time other than the people that were in the show. I had a right. great time with them. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of other great shows there. Chess, for example, Svetlana, mm-hmm. you played that role. Mm-hmm. How was it, uh, I know it's a weird concept when I tried to get my head around it that, you know, Benny and Bjorn had written a musical, yeah. you know, from ABBA, but it was so different from their music um, in, in ABBA. So how was that production for you and, and the music? Was it very challenging? I think musically it's brilliant, that show, honestly, and... If you listen to any of the ABBA music, it's so melodic Mm. Um, and they, you know, they had for chess particularly um, great music and Tim Rice doing the lyrics, you know, the partner to Andrew Lloyd Webber. It was just a beautiful marriage and I was very um, fortunate because Svetlana never got to sing someone else's story. That was Florence's song Mm. and Jim Sharman decided that he wanted Svetlana's presence from the get-go. So it was changed completely for the Australian production. Um, It was set in Bangkok, obviously, but Svetlana had arrived with her husband. She did a lot of shopping in Bangkok. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, I got to sing some great pieces and he gave me someone else's story, which... mm, I treasure that to this day, that song. Just beautiful. And Love Never Dies, that's a sequel to Phantom of the Opera. Not, not. Um, I suppose, I'm going to use the word as popular as Phantom mm-hmm. of the Opera, but what could be? Yeah. My second or third show that I worked on in professional theatre was Phantom of the Opera. Right. And that was the last six months that it was in Melbourne, so it came back for a second time in Melbourne. And then it went uh, to, th- I think, three months in Perth. That tour went for seven years. Right. Nothing's going to eclipse that. No. Um, so it's hard to compare everything to Phantom of the Opera, but Love Never Dies was the sequel. Talk me through your process with that. And you also recorded a DVD mm-hmm. a, a, as well. What what happened with that? Now, at the time when Love Never Dies was being talked about, 
I was doing a funny show called Menopause the Musical. Mm. And Andrea Creighton, who was one of the other actresses in the show, had done Phantom. Right. She'd played Carlotta and she said, Maria, they're bringing Love Never Dies to Australia. You have to audition for Madame Giri. I said, yeah, but Madame Giri originally she has a soprano kind of voice and that's not me. No, she's completely different. So anyway, I purchased the London production and listened to it and with every role that I've ever played and got, I have an immediate connection to and I connected immediately to Madame Giri. Great, great. And I loved it. It was so dark and and gothic and I love the whole Coney Island aspect of it, of the Phantom having escaped Paris when, you know, the Opera House was burning and Madame Giri, you know, hid him in a box somewhere <laughs> on the mm. ship. And, uh, you know, she was like his right-hand man, so to speak. I love that whole concept. And so I was determined to audition. Um And sadly enough, the day of the audition that week, my cousin had passed away and so I cancelled. And my agent kept trying and trying to get me another audition. Finally, we did, which was for the recalls and I auditioned for Simon Phillips. And I thought, okay, waited a couple of days later. Yes, we want to see her again. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go in there and do it again. But what I didn't realise, Simon had chosen who he wanted for the roles. So that final audition was a workshop. Right, okay. We were filmed again and Andrew Lloyd Webber obviously had to give the green light to everyone. And that's how I I got, to, you know, to be cast as Madame Giri. And it was exciting because, um, you know, Simon was going to, you know, change the whole thing up. Love Never Dies didn't get great reviews in London, we have to be honest. Um, and Simon, you know, turned it on its head. Right. And, but when you fix some elements to a show, there has to be sacrifices and... I feel Madame Giri's role was sacrificed. Right, Because okay. originally Madame Giri opens the show. Okay. In Coney Island and you see all these old posters, you know, falling off this wall and it's very dark and gothic and that's what I fell in love with. And I'm being honest, you know, that was cut because they wanted a spectacular opening right. to Coney Island. Mm. Um you know, and it was the right decision for the show, mm. but it wasn't the right decision for my ego. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I guess, brings us to how difficult is it to, um, I guess, keep the money coming in mm. as an actor, as yeah. a performer, as a singer? Um it's a difficult profession that you've chosen, yet you've been able to last all these years. How do you survive in the lean times, um, I guess, you know, not only emotionally but, you know, financially? How does that work for you? Yeah, particularly in Australia, you know, um, and I remember, again, Nancy Hayes saying to me that, you know, once I had done nine, my first musical per se, that I will never be able to just be 
in ensemble or to play minor roles anymore. Mm. That's it. Um, yeah, and I have faced lean times in my life, I'm honest enough to say so. Um, and they were difficult times, particularly when I lived in Sydney. Um, yeah, and when you're struggling financially, you're struggling emotionally as well. Mm, yes. And they are the moments that I wished that I had finished my schooling so that I could have something to fall back onto. Right. You know, people have asked me to teach. Um, I may start doing some workshops, you know. That is a twofold thing because you're imparting your experience and helping, you know, mould young performers, but it also helps financially as well. Yes. Um, I'm lucky I have a partner who supports me through the lean times. Good. Um, but, yeah, look, at one stage uh, when I was living in Sydney, um, there are a lot of actors who were working in call centres. Right. And I did a stint um, for a little while. That was an experience. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, for the biography, that'll go down really well. Um, Yeah, you just do what you got to do. And I remember my dad when he was alive, um, he said there's no shame in working wherever you work, you know. Mm. They're the words of a migrant who worked three jobs at one time to sustain his life, his family, and... You know, there are no guarantees in anything or any profession. Um, you know, it's it's great to have a, a job that is guaranteed, I guess. Um, but in our profession, particularly in Australia, there are no guarantees. Um, yeah, so you have to prepare for for the lean times, I guess. It's life. And that leads us to what does the future hold for you? And I'm going to also just come out and say, I reckon that your life is prime for you to do a one-woman show about. What do you think of that? I think that's a great idea. And you're right. I do want to do a one-woman show about my life and and recap on all those incredible experiences that I've had. So you want to or I want you to. will? I will. I will. Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So uh, how far advanced are you other than um, it being just an idea at the moment? Is that something that you can put a date on? Is it something you want to do in the next 12 to 24 months? I'd like it in the next 24 months because I've got some other things that I'm doing, you know, presently working towards. Um yeah, we're doing Taxidi. I didn't speak about Taxidi. Yes. Which um, is the first, you know, show I've ever done where I've actually had the opportunity to sing in Greek. Wow. And Helen Yotis Patterson wrote it. She interviewed family members and friends and neighbours. And the perspective is um, women migrating to Australia from the 50s, 60s and 70s. And these stories are universal and it doesn't matter what country you come from. Um, Some happy stories. Some young women wanted to escape, you know, the poverty and 
And, you know, it kept coming back to Greece that, you know, the streets of Australia were lined in gold, you know. Mm. So people wanted to come out here, as my parents did. Yes. Because there were no opportunities. Um, so, yeah, Taxidi, um, we play four characters and I was lucky enough that my mum got to see that show. Wow. Um, because there's also projections of, of Greece and women on the boats coming out and... My mum saw herself projected out there, uh-huh. so her story was being lived in, you know, in front of her like that, and so that was a gift to give back to my mum after all the years of the support. And I just wish my dad had been around to mm. see it; he would have loved it. So we're doing Taxi the uh, for the Adelaide Cabaret Festival in June, um, which will be great because there are a lot of Greek people in Adelaide, I believe. Um, And, yeah, that'll be kind of a a testing ground because, yeah, Melbourne was totally embraced and we got great reviews, um, but we want to see how it travels and translates to other cities. So we're doing that and I'm doing a a play late August, well, we start rehearsals in August, um, called Anthem, written by Christos Tsoulkas, who wrote yes. Slap and Head On, yeah, which was loaded before that. Mm. Andrew Bavel's also writing. Um, so, yeah, I'm getting to do some interesting things. I'm always doing different things, you know, which is great. And the older I get, you know, the one thing that hasn't diminished in me is um, when I you know, get to do a project, it's like I'm doing something for the first time and I'm really excited and and I know I'm going to get so much out of it personally. Yeah. And before we go, this business is a tough business and you yeah. are you're a survivor. Mm. Let, let's be honest, you've done it your whole life. Yeah. Not many people do that these days, um, stay in one job mm. uh, or an industry as a whole. What's what's your secret and how can you best, I guess, say to other people that um, are looking to get into the industry or uh, midway through and just thinking, oh, it's just too much, I, w- I want to get a real job, how is the best advice that you can give? Look, it's... It's so strange to give advice to other people, you know. Um, we all have our survival mechanisms. You have to ask yourself why you're doing it to begin with, you know. If you're doing it for some kind of glory or fame or whatever, you can give up now because very few reach that... that pinnacle? Pin- pinnacle, absolutely. Um, you know, Jackie Weaver is an incredible um, example of how she became, you know, well-known worldwide, you know, in the latest stage of her life, you know. Imagine if she had given up, Mm, you know. Yeah. So you just never know. Yes. So the thing is I believe that my, my worry is that there are so many performing art schools now. You know, in my time there weren't that many. We had NIDA. I don't know even if the VCA was here at the time. I don't know. Probably. Um, So now there are these, you know, academies churning out young performers. 
Where are they going to go? Mm, good we, question. We don't have the industry to support so many people. Um, it's so competitive. You know, even for me at this stage of my life, I still have to audition. Yeah. Very few roles are just offered to me. Um, so, yeah, I, I believe that you have to um, have something else up your sleeve as well, finish your education, um, but keep working, keep learning, um, keep being passionate about it and you never know. I mean, your lucky number may come up. Mm. You just have to be prepared. Um, and if you're in it for the money, just don't even contemplate mm. it. Yeah. Good advice. <laughs> Well, thank you for appearing on the show. You've, to me, you've always been um, open, honest. Um, you wear your heart on your sleeve, and that's what I love about you. As well as that, you're super talented. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just—I uh, know we've been trying for a while to uh, to to get together <laughs> to do this, but um, I really, really appreciate your time and everything that you you bring to, I guess, life as well as the industry as a whole. So, thank you very much. Thank you, Luke. It's been great. You are a wonderful psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> and it's free. And it's free. <laughs> That's great. Thank you for being on the show and we'll be back for another episode of The Artiste next time. The Artiste is an original podcast series devised and hosted by me, Luke Gibson. It's produced by myself and Matt Gerber-Korn and is recorded, edited and mixed at Sonic Playground in South Melbourne by Ben Churchill and Matt. Music score by Robert Upwood. Find him at robertupwood.com.au. Cover art by Romy Sachs. Keep up to date with The Artiste by following us on Instagram and Facebook, The Artiste Podcast. The Artiste is a co-production between Peppermint Media and Sonic Playground. Sonic Playground.